face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. This nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident. Hello and welcome to episode 23 of the Policy Dialogue Series with alumni, staff, faculty, and students from the University of Maryland School of Public Policy. The views expressed do not represent official positions of the school or alumni network. Our goal is to discuss specific policy solutions that can address and solve the current local, national, and international challenges we face. We are recording this on April 23rd, 2021, and my name is Evan Papp, and I graduated with the class of 2011 with a focus on international security and economic policy. And I'm the executive producer of Empathy Media Lab, which publishes content on labor, political economy, arts, and culture. I'm very excited to be speaking with Maryland State Senator Paul Pinsky, who is also my representative for District 22. Senator Pinsky became a member of the Maryland Senate in 1994 after serving two terms in the House of Delegates. He serves as chair of the Education, Health and Environmental Affairs Committee, where he's an outspoken voice as a champion of progressive causes, especially in relation to education, healthcare and the environment. Senator Pinsky has also led efforts to reform Maryland's tax structure by closing corporate tax loopholes and creating a progressive tax structure, as well as providing health care for all Maryland residents. Previously, Senator Pinsky taught high school uh, history for 20 years. So, Senator Pinsky, thank you so much for your time. Uh, my pleasure being here, Evan. Thank you. So could we begin by talking about your background and why you first wanted to run for elected office? Well, um, unlike uh, Bill Clinton, I didn't grow up thinking I wanted to be president of the United States. Uh, I grew up in the late, late 60s, so I was demonstrating against a war in Vietnam, uh, then for social justice against uh, racial injustice. Uh, I've had a few uh, arrests to my name and protest in Keystone Pipeline. So I, electoral politics was not front and center for me. Uh, while I was teaching and president of the local teachers union, uh, I saw an opportunity, however. Uh, one of the authors of the uh, legislation called TRIM, which was a tax cap in Prince George's County, uh, which followed on the California effort of uh, a Prop 13, uh, was up for election, re-election in the House of Delegates. And, and I saw the effects of this property tax cap, uh, what it would do for social services like funding for education. He was also very conservative, uh, Democrat, but very conservative. So I said, maybe I should find a niche in, uh, in state politics. So we put a grassroots effort together and um, I wanted to see what I could do in terms of coordinating grassroots mobilization and having uh, voices in Annapolis and having those two work together. So that's what generated it in uh, the mid 1980s. So I was not familiar with that and uh... I'm sure there's been so many changes uh, in Prince George's County uh, around that. Can you talk a little bit about uh, just the school system? And you, you have 20 years of teaching experience, what you're teaching history. So, um, and you're also head of the, the teachers union. Um, could you just talk a little bit about that uh, experience as well? Well, I started teaching, wasn't sure what I wanted to do after I graduated college and worked a little bit. Uh, so I decided to teach and I wanted to teach in a multiracial environment. So I came to Prince George's County and 
I ended up teaching in one of the two uh, historic African-American high schools in the county, uh, Fairmont Heights and Douglas for the two. And it was right after busing. So a lot of uh, white students from a working class community were being bused in the predominantly black community. And um, there are a lot of young staff who came. And as much as I thought I was gonna teach a lot of people, um, I learned a whole lot. I think I was a student in terms of racial politics and the black community. So I, I taught uh, at Fairmont Heights, a great experience. Uh, I taught history a little differently. Um, I took it from a, a labor theory of value and a class struggle kind of history. Um, and whether I taught US history or world history or Chinese studies or minority politics, uh, it was a great effort. And, and I had a lot of students who were open to ideas. Um, they were not from an elite class. They, they were mostly working black and white children of, of working families. So it was exciting. I ended up uh, coaching basketball. I, it was a game I always knew better than I played it. Um, so um, it was pretty exciting. And, and I stayed from there. I went to work for a teacher's association on staff. And then I went to a organization doing uh, social education policy, giving uh, technical assistance to many states in the South. So I've been in education for 40 plus years. So that leads me to the next question. Uh, could you talk about what is this, the uh, Education, Health and Environmental Affairs Committee that you're chairman of? And uh, for those who may not have any experience about how Annapolis politics works in Maryland, uh, if you could maybe open the, the door or the window and, and shed some light on it. We're a part-time legislature. We're in for three months out of the year. There are some states like California, New York, I think Pennsylvania uh, that are in year round. And there's some states like Texas and I want to say North Dakota that only come in every two years. Uh, so most are part-time. And while it's a little schizophrenic uh, to be in your career for nine months and then go to Annapolis for three months where you're just you know, engulfed in, in politics uh, 24 seven, it's also interesting because you're grounded. You know, For the, the months you're not in the legislature you're working a job, you're with other regular people, they treat you like a regular person, you know, you're helping uh, your children grow up and do soccer or baseball or basketball, whatever, and you're very accessible to other people. So it's very grounding, you know, where part-time legislature for nine months, people can accost you and tell you what they're thinking, and then you go and, and try to put uh, some of those practices in, in, the, in the policy for the whole state. So, um, it's an interesting situation. There are four standing committees in the Senate. There are two chambers, the Senate and the House, just somewhat like the US Congress. Um, so all education bills, uh, K-12, as well as higher ed, and uh, environmental bills and procurement issues and election issues go through our committee. So for those 90 days, I can tell you it's a pretty damn power packed. And you were also on the Kirwin uh, Commission. Could you talk about what the policy aims of that was and is? We knew we had to do something different here in Maryland. So the, we passed a bill uh, setting up a blue ribbon panel of 25 people uh, headed by the former president of University of Maryland and the chancellor, uh, Britt Kerwin, who was a wonderful human being and was a great leader. We had uh, elected leaders, we had teachers, we had school board members, we had private sector people, we had county council, we had policy people in, in the field of education, we had Democrats, Republicans. We spent three years looking to best practices internationally. 
and try to come up with a plan of those best practices that we could implement in Maryland to make uh, our state really world-class. Um, it was challenging, challenging. And uh, trying to come up with a, a proposal that would be phased in. Obviously, you can't turn on a dime. It's not like uh, you can say, we're gonna put in these policies. Some need, need to be phased in, some are very expensive. So we came up with a proposal, a 10-year phase in. Um, tutoring in the early grades, um, wraparound services in the schools, make it more challenging to become a teacher, uh, better salary and working condition for teachers so we can attract the best and brightest, uh, retraining so people can minimize conflict and challenges and, and acting out in schools and, and redoing curriculum and expanding career technology. I mean, it was pretty sweeping. So we passed it two years ago. Unfortunately, the governor vetoed it. So we wasted a whole year, which was unfortunate. So we came back this year over the veto and um, that's now going into effect. So I'm very excited. I, it's gonna take time. You know, we have a Howard County and a Montgomery County that has a fairly significant middle class. And we have Baltimore City and Prince George's with a whole lot of children in poverty. Uh, one of the things we came up with was a new category called concentrated poverty. So a school with 50% children in poverty is a whole lot different than one with 90%, you know, where almost virtually all the students, uh, their parents or, or parent is working one job and a lot of times children are left behind and they're far below grade level. So we wanted to take in all of these uh, uniqueness and, and, and challenges across the state and a program that worked for everybody. So. It's going to take a little while to uh, bear the fruit, particularly we've had the setback of the pandemic, uh, and that has really crushed many students. Uh, you can't learn as well uh, if you're doing it uh, one-dimensionally uh, virtual. So, you know, we, I'd hate to, I, I wish, we, I could say we treaded water, but I'm afraid there was a little bit of a, a sinking over the last 12 or 15 months. So we've got to make up for that and get people to the to the original mark, and then we've got to start pushing ahead and challenging, challenging administration in schools, challenging parents, challenging students, challenging teachers. Uh, we think all students can learn and should have the right to learn. And I remember taking a class at the School of Public Policy, and one of the professors was hailing the Chilean model you know, which they instituted from the Chicago school that was a very neoliberal policy. And it was after the removal of Pinochet and, and or when Pinochet came in um, after the removal of Allende. And my point was, hey, we need more resources to go into the schools. And oftentimes, if you can invest to bring in uh, salaries that are very competitive with every other sector and you're able to pay the teachers well, if you're able to invest in the actual physical structures of the schools, and if you're able to make sure that the class sizes are manageable, you know, 10 to 20. If you go to these elite schools, they're, they're very small class uh, structure, uh, class sizes. The challenge with a lot of state governments like Maryland is that you have to run these budgets and you can't deficit spend uh, like the, the federal government. So what what are some of the ideas on, on trying to raise revenue um, in, in places like Prince George's County? Well, you're absolutely right. Uh, while money isn't the answer, the only answer, it's very important to invest in infrastructure, 
buildings where it's conducive to learning, paying teachers a livable salary that will attract teachers. You know, many great smart people um, are going to be doctors and lawyers or real estate agents, and we'd like to have many of them be educators. Um, but when they have to balance the cost benefit and they have to raise a family and pay rent or a mortgage, uh, they sometimes choose other professions. So we have to change that. Uh, how to raise revenue. You know, there's been this whole anti-tax attitude uh, started by the Republicans uh, many years ago, I guess in the, in 80 or, or soon after. Um, and I, even some Democrats have bought into this idea. Uh, and I think it has had a, a horrible effect on the social contract of we're going to invest for the good of the, the greater good and that we're going to invest so our children, grandchildren, and other people's children, grandchildren will benefit. And I think it's done harm. Um, not that any kind of taxes should fall in disproportionately on working or poor families. I think it's personally, I think it should fall on the multimillionaires and the billionaires and the corporations, but they've been able to write the tax policy. So it hasn't, they've avoided it. So we've got to figure out a way to pay for the, these important services. And I think we have to close corporate loopholes. We have to have a progressive tax policy where the multimillionaires pay a heck of a lot more. Uh, and we sort of reduce the burden if possible in working in poor families. And, um, you know, a lot of these businesses come to states like Maryland, not because of the tax policy, because the infrastructure, the roads, the schools, the culture. And I think they should be able to pay uh, their fair share. And I think they'll plead poverty and try not to. And I've got to fight with the Chamber of Commerce every year who try to defend them and talk about uh, corporate profits. But, you know, I, I think we've got to put a working and in, in middle income families first. So taking a step back, what are some of uh, your successes this legislative year? And then um, taking a, a much wider stance, what are what's some of the legislation you're most proud of? Well, we did a number of things. Uh, I, I, had, I had less of my uh, fingerprints on them, but the police accountability passed in Maryland this year was a paradigm shift. Um, it'll hopefully will be a model for much of the country. Uh, there's been too much damage, danger, uh, harm done to the black and brown communities. Not all police officers, but some, they have a badge and a gun and they overact. And I think the training has been wrong and the white supremacy is so ingrained in many people, the results have been just horrible. And not, look, it's been more visible, you know, with uh, the murder of George Floyd in the last 15 months. It's been going on for generations. This is not new. And again, uh, I'm not African-American, but I've seen it, I've read about it. It's not hard to, uh, you can't ignore it. So I, the police accountability package of bills, uh, changing the uh, law officer bill of rights. So someone who is being investigated doesn't have a shield around them and, and protection, uh, cameras, people where police officers had multiple complaints against them, even though they don't have convictions, that should be accessible to the public. You know, if someone has five or 10 or 15 complaints, that should tell you something. Um, so the, the package was very, very important, very significant. Uh, it was hard, but I'm very proud of that uh, for, a for the legislature. 
obviously we had some COVID relief uh, initiatives. Uh, my committee particularly, we deal with election law. And, you know, we see what's happening in Georgia um, where they're narrowing the ability to vote. Uh, we're trying to go in the other direction of increasing accessibility to voting and encouraging more people to vote. You know, Stacey Abrams nationally is doing a great job, uh, particularly in Georgia. So we've had some reforms that don't go far enough. Uh, we passed a bill that says, if you wanna sign up for a permanent mail ballot uh, for future elections, so you don't have to go out to vote to a, a, a location, uh, that passed. And I think that's very important. So if someone wants to vote, is a good voter, um, or if, even if they're new, a new voter, if they wanna have a ballot sent to their home for every election, they can sign up and that'll take place. We've expanded hours for early voting and we've tried to make it easier. Uh, we wanna encourage people, not discourage people. So I'm, I'm pretty proud of the election law. Um, in terms of environment, we passed a number of, of modest bills. I was the lead sponsor of a bill called the Climate Solutions Now Act uh, to address climate change. Again, it was a major bill, um, new building codes, uh, planting 5 million trees over the next 10 years, electrifying the state fleet of passenger cars and buses, uh, making sure and requiring new schools to be either solar ready or carbon neutral uh, to achieve a 60% reduction by 2030. And, and, it had, and it also dealt with environmental justice, just transition of how we shift our economy and how we prepare people who are losing their jobs, say in a coal fired power plant how do we ensure a transition to a new job with a decent pay where they can raise their family? So uh, we got it through the state Senate. I was very proud of that. Unfortunately, it languished in the House of Delegates for three weeks and they sent it back drastically uh, amended, some might say eviscerated. Uh, and we had to deal with it in the last 24 or 48 hours. So uh, I felt it was a shell of itself. So I didn't want to support a bad bill and they were not willing to change or compromise. We were, however, uh, able to amend the 5 million trees over the next 10 years with 10% going to urban areas where asthma is high and, and there's, there's no tree cover uh, onto another bill. So that passed, so the state is committed. And, and that's good because it absorbs carbon dioxide. That's good for the climate. And also the trees help clean up the bay. So if they're planted near streams or rivers, they absorb the nutrients and clean up the bay. And the other thing, we're able to pass the bill at the last day on Monday, the final day of session, electrifying the uh, state bus fleet. So we had some modest gains. I'm optimistic we're ultimately gonna pass a bill that we'd be proud of. Well, I really appreciate all the work that you've been doing. And at the same time, you know, you just finished uh, a session uh, last week. And so I'm sure uh, you deserve some rest uh, coming up here. So I, I have a, a few questions on some controversial uh, topics in our region. And I, I know being um, very focused on the environment and reducing CO2 emissions to slow climate change, uh, what is your view on the Calvert Cliffs nuclear power plant? And what is the role of nuclear energy as a clean energy source? Well, look, it doesn't release carbon dioxide. So in that sense, it's clean. Do I have confidence that it's safe? I don't. Uh, we've had too many errors and incidents. Um, you know, the governor of Maryland, Hogan, has 
suggested building uh, smaller nuclear reactors. Uh, I call them uh, neighborhood nukes. And I don't think there's anybody that I know would, that would like to have a small nuclear reactor in their backyard. Um, the Calvert Cliffs has been there, it's been working. Uh, it comes up and it, its permit ends, I think in three or four years, maybe longer. Um, I, don't, I don't want to expand nuclear. I think if we expand solar, wind turbines, geothermal, we can start to make the necessary changes. Uh, if I was purely sure that we could have safe nuclear and with the remains, but I'm not, you know, Chernobyl happened. Yes, it's been lots of years, um, but I'm just not sure I trust it as an energy source. Uh, I know some European nations, uh, France, Spain have used it significantly. So at the moment, I'm not in favor of uh, renewing their, um, their permit when it comes up sometime in the next five or 10 years. And then turning to uh, the natural gas question, because there, there's some issues about the natural gas uh, pipeline going underneath uh, the Potomac. And um, I, I believe there, there's just some questions about permitting on uh, getting huge solar utility uh, scale solar uh, grids uh, that can oftentimes lead to cutting down uh, trees. And, and then there's a lot of people not in my backyard with the, the, the wind as well. But I, I guess, what are your views then on natural gas, which is um, necessary to go with some of the intermittency with uh, solar and wind? No, it, it's, it's, it's probably the pressing question, Evan. I think ultimately we need more of the uh, clean energy sources. And I know there are people who don't like one element or another, but we have to have a plan to get there. And I find that natural gas is less um, emitting carbon dioxide than coal or, or oil. That being said, I don't want to expand fracking. So I, I, but I, we have to have a plan so we can turn the lights on, we can turn our computers on. Uh, we don't have other power sources. So I think as a bridge fuel, we have to use natural gas, but I think we should maintain it, not increase it. So in other words, if we need infrastructure, piping repairs to keep our natural gas flowing, we have to have an energy source. I think building new natural gas and new pipelines is a mistake. So in other words, if our goal is to get pure clean energy, uh, wind turbines, uh, all of these things, uh, uh, more heat pumps in, in buildings, in, in uh, residential and commercial, uh, more energy efficiency savings, so we even need less energy. But we have to get to that point. And right now, it's a small percentage of our energy. So we, we need some transition. So my view is we shouldn't increase that we're reliant on natural gas 5, 10, 20 years from now, but we still have to maintain the natural gas we have. So I, it, it's tough, you know. People say, stop the natural gas. Well, do you want the lights turned on tomorrow morning? Just simply not enough solar. There's not enough wind. And you're right, there are some people who say, well, you're knocking down trees on solar. Well, there was also concern with, with wind turbines. It, it kills some birds. Well, you know, we can't get to clean energy with some residual side effects. It's, it's just a fact. You know, we can't have, you know, we can't get away from oil and, and gas or coal if we're not willing to put up solar or wind. And solar and wind have some marginal costs. 
and you know, however strong an environmentalist someone is, you have to do a cost benefit analysis. We can't be pure. There, there is no purity in making a transition to a clean uh, energy in our state, in our country, in our world. It's gonna have some cost to it. So, but I think there's enough area where we can put large solar farms without knocking down trees. I don't think we should knock down forests. I would like to get to a point where we can have raised solar farms so we can actually farm beneath it and have solar at the same time. Most projections say that for us to meet our goals of, uh, of clean energy, a 50% will come from rooftop, uh, residential, office buildings, warehouses, and half will come from utility scale, the big solar farms. But we have to have a plan. We're not just gonna get there. It's not just gonna happen. So we gotta be systematic about achieving it. You know, I was the first one to introduce legislation for the offshore wind off of Ocean City. Now under the Trump administration, Trump stopped it for four years. Well, it's on the books, we have a federal permit. We should go ahead. I mean, there are people in Ocean City government who say, well, you gotta push it far off, it's gonna affect tourism. I think that's baloney. You know, 15, 19 miles, it's like a toothpick. You'll barely be able to see it. And they're now moving ahead in New Jersey, Massachusetts. It's been built in Block Island off of uh, Rhode Island. Um, we have to move in that direction. We have to take the necessary steps to get there. It won't always be simple. Definitely. And I, I think it's also really important to try to bring home all the manufacturing to the United States as well. And to make sure that energy costs don't go up while we're doing it, because that's also going to have a major backlash to the people who may be most affected on a, a re regressive increase on, on energy costs for, for people who may be most impoverished. So. Well, I, I think the policy has to be, we protect working and poor families. The fact is however, in a lot of this clean energy, there's a big upfront cost, but then it pays for itself many times over. You know, so, but you don't always see the savings until five or eight or 10 years later in terms of uh, energy efficiency and lowering energy costs. Thank you for that. And I don't wanna keep you here too long. There's a couple other uh, okay. I, I do wanna focus on. The Maglev Rail Project, there's a lot of pushback on that. And I was, I'm, I'm very interested in this technology myself. And when I see Japan and China being able to move people at 300 miles an hour, you don't have to take a airplane. I'm very interested. Though I've understand, uh, understood that there, there's a lot of opposition based on the siting, based on the equi equity on it. So I, I guess, could you just talk a little bit about um, why you're against this project? And is there ever a point in the future where something like this project or a high-speed rail through here, and Acela is not really a high-speed rail in Europe and elsewhere, you know, um, but trying to figure out how we can bring in more trains into the, our infrastructure and our grid. Look, I'm not anti-technology. I believe we need innovation. I find this maglev, which is magnetic levitation, where it rides above the tracks. Right now, the plan is to go from Washington to Baltimore with a stop at the airport, BWI Marshall, and then on to New York. And I've had discussions about the price points of what it will cost. And personally, I think a lot of the people behind her are lowballing. I think this is gonna be very expensive. And I get concerned, I represent Prince George's County. When one, there won't be a stop in Prince George's County. Even if you wanna to go to Washington, go to New York, it's gonna be unaffordable. 
I mean, right now a cell is too expensive. I mean, I don't ride a cell, you know, and and I'm in a middle class uh, community, uh, but working and poor people can't even afford that. So my belief is initially it's going to be for lobbyists and bankers from New York. And as much as those people have a right to transportation, we have problems right here at home with the metro system. You know, I, I think the metro should be expanded. I think it should, should be more efficient. There should be more trains. I mean, pre-pandemic and post-pandemic, if we go to anything similar. So I, I just think we need other methods of mass transit should be in the forefront before we get the maglev. Uh, you know, the governor is proposing widening the Washington Beltway, widening 270 and, and a new bridge over the uh, Potomac. I think it's nuts. You know, we should be investing in mass transit. You know, the MARC train, the train that goes between Baltimore and Washington, it ends at 630. Uh, so I, I have a, a constituent who works in Baltimore, but they said, if I'm not done by 630, I can't get home. So he's got to get in his car. You know, people from Frederick who come down to DC to work for the government, if they could get from Frederick to Shady Grove and get on the Metro, whether it's a dedicated bus lane, whatever it is, I just think adding lanes, toll lanes, mind you, which could be 40 or $50 is very 19th century. It's not 21st century. So I think we need more mass transit. I just don't see maglev in the next five or 10 years as the solution to get large numbers of people from one place to another. I, I think it's, unless I see th something that can be more beneficial, I oppose it. Plus I put in legislation saying, look, if you wanna build it fine, but I want a guaranteed lock that you will not come back to the state asking for us to help underwrite it. And they oppose that bill, which says to me, they're gonna run short, they're gonna come back to the state and ask for taxpayer money to pay for transportation for bankers and lobbyists. And I won't do that. Yeah, and I, I personally think we need to invest way more in the Mark train. Uh, it, it, one line even goes out to Martinsburg, West Virginia. When you start looking at the train lines in Maryland, uh, even 100 years ago, there were trains going all the way out to Ocean Beach um, from Baltimore. And I think there's a lot of folks in, um, in and around uh, Prince George's County, more south of here, that should be having a better train line, a train uh, line as well. And of course, Governor Hogan shut down the red line in Baltimore. That was absurd as well. So, and, and Char Charles County, you know, has a large population that commutes to Washington D.C. for their jobs, and the traffic getting from Charles County from Waldorf, even to Suitland to get on the metro, is outrageous. And they need a light rail, or they need a uh, a bus system, a dedicated bus system. We have to get cars off the road. Or we're never going to uh, be able to challenge the climate change and the reductions we need. So the purple line is obviously uh, something I was so excited to see coming. Uh, I'm living, you know, in, in Riverdale, and there's a stop there, and there's another stop at College Park, and then of course the the public-private partnership. Uh, pulled out, uh, the private uh, part of that uh, contract pulled out. There obviously were some issues with cost overruns based on a lawsuit that was filed that slowed down um, the construction. But what are some of your thoughts on this public-private partnership um, with the Purple Line? And then I'm also going to ask you about the PG County school system doing a public-private partnership to build schools as well. 
Okay. Um, I've been an advocate for the Purple Line for over 22 years. I've among the first. I uh, helped get some of the original money from uh, Governor Glenn Deming way back when. I've been a big fan. You know, our metro system is like a bike wheel. All the spokes come out from the center, but that's not where everybody lives. You know, people work in Bethesda, they work in Rockville. And for someone in New Carrollton to have to go downtown and then back out on the metro to get to work is nuts. So we should have always thought about connecting the spokes in the wheel. That's what the Purple Line does. So, you know, and, and I think it's very important. I think it's, I was always leery of this P3, this public-private partnership. Uh, and of course, you ran into problems with construction for the reasons you mentioned. Uh, I think we're gonna get it back on track. It's gonna push it back a year and a half, which is unfortunate. Um, I, I think we need more mass transit, whether it's light rail, whether it's buses. Look, if New York City can do it, you know, very few people have cars in the, in the five boroughs. They used a subway system. If they can do it, we can do it. Uh, it it's a paradigm shift. People are used to being in their car. But I, I think if we have an efficient plan, some people have two cars in a family can cut it down to one. You know, and we should have a, an easier car rental in every neighborhood to pick up a car if need be. So I think we have to really have a vision to change how we do business here in the state. And 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 I, and yeah. just to interject really quickly, uh, sorry to interrupt. The no. the the fact is, you go to any um, industrialized nation, and every city has a train line, and there's a ring around it. And this is just one part of that ring. It's a very, it's like a, a quarter part of it. You know, you still want the full thing. And I I just feel like we should be sending all of our state elected officials and federal elected officials to Europe and to China because they just built 30,000 kilometers of high-speed rail in the last you know, 10, 12 years. You can do it if there's political will there. Unfortunately, I think there's just so many people who just don't, they need to shift the paradigm of, of what's possible, but sorry for interrupting. No, 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 and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, Europe's been ahead of us on many, look, on the bike share, I mean, European capitals had the bike share before we did, you know, and, and they had a vision of looking at the big picture. We've been stuck in, in a certain paradigm without a shift. And this is not new. You know, in Los Angeles, they, they killed mass transit because they wanted to have highways and build highways and sell cars. Uh, Governor Hogan wants to help uh, the road builders. You know, it, we have to, we can't let profit go before people. People have to go first. We have to take into consideration the environment and also the cost efficiency, because I think over time, mass transit makes a hell of a lot more sense. And, and finally, because I'm going to have to wrap this, um, the school system has decided because they don't have enough upfront money to build as many schools as we need to try this partnership. And the idea is that uh, the private sector will put up the upfront money and then they'll get paid off over time. It's like they're taking out a mortgage because the county or the state doesn't have enough capital to make the initial investment. And, you know, again, I'm leery of the public-private partnership, but I know a lot of people in our community want new schools and we need new schools. So it's a balancing act of, of having schools that are conducive to learning, that aren't breaking down, uh, that don't have mice or bad lighting or no, or no windows. At the same time, how do you get the funds? And in this transitional period till we have a uh, a reasonable uh, economic system and a reasonable taxation system, you know, I guess we're going to have to bite the bullet in a few cases. So, but I, I think we have to be extremely, extremely careful. 
Well, Senator Pinsky, thank you so much for your time. And I'm going to put uh, links in the show notes about how people can get in touch with you and follow Great. your work. And I really appreciate all your service and everything you're doing. Thank you. And I, I appreciate the School of Public Policy graduates. And uh, it's great having the School of Public Policy at College Park. And soon we'll be welcoming a, a new building as well. I, I know that's under construction. So uh, I'm excited. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you.